Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, let's get to it. We've got a lot to do today in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 42 is where we find ourselves. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to Genesis 42. If you don't have a Bible, I really encourage you to use one of the ones in the uh, seat rack in front of you. We're going to have the text that we'll read up on the screen. I think it'd be very helpful for you, though, to follow along in the Bible on your lap. I think that's just one of the best ways to to just become familiar with God's Word and to, uh, to just see the text for yourself. All right, this is going to be a long passage. We're actually going to cover about four chapters today. We're not going to read all of them, uh, but we're going to skip through them. But we are going to read a good bit of this. And we are coming down to an end of our series. We've been in Genesis for quite some time. And we're coming down now to the end of this incredible story of God's beginning of all things and then His choosing a family out from a lost creation to be his, his, really his jewel through which he would shine his glory to all other peoples. And we're coming to the end of this book where things are an absolute mess. And so here, before we get into Genesis 42, let me just kind of catch you up on the story and then tell you the, really the question that we need to answer that I think 42 through 45 answers for us. God has created all things. He created a world that was not just good, but very good. And that world willingly rejected God. Now, we could talk all day about how that did not surprise God. He was providentially, sovereignly in control of all things. Even the fall was mysteriously part of God's plan so that he would save people for himself out of a fallen creation to ultimately restore his people in relationship with him and reconcile all things to himself. That in itself is a beautiful mystery and wonderful display of God's redemptive plan from the beginning of time. But nevertheless, creation falls and God then reaches down, breaks into fallen creation and chooses one man named Abraham. And he says to this one man, you're going to be my man. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great people come from you. I'm going to give you many offspring. And through you, through the family, in fact, through the nation that I will make through you, I will bless all the peoples of the earth and I will restore uh, my people to a right relationship with me. And so we say, okay, that's what God is going to do. But then this man, Abraham, has this family and these sons who are going to be the the fathers, the patriarchs of this family that God has promised to bless the world through are absolute train wrecks. I mean, we've been reading for the past week after week. I feel like we, the preachers here, feel like the, the guy, the circus clown, you know, like, like he has one trick. He just crawls in the cannon and gets shot out, you know. It's just every week it's like we're just crawling in the cannon. And God's people are a wreck, but he bears with them anyway. Amen. We come back next week. Oh my gosh, God's people are a wreck, but he bears with them. We just, so again, we're just crawling back in the cannon, getting shot back out. And we find ourselves now getting to the end of Genesis wondering, this is the family that God is going to use? This family? These people? How is God going to bring them back into a right relationship with himself? How is he going to take their hard rebellious, wicked hearts and make them 
soft and in right relationship with him. But friends, do you see this isn't just the story of this family? Isn't this just the story of all? How, how, how is God going to do the same with us? So, so this, this end of Genesis here, the tension, the question is the question of all ages. How does God make people right and into relationship with him despite the fact that they've spent their lives running from him? So that's the question. Well, let me start reading in, verse, in chapter 42. But before I do that, let me pray. And here's our plan. We're going to read through. We're going to skip some parts. We're going to, parts. We're going to read quickly. And then we're going to draw out from this three truths. So we're going to, we're going to, the speed is going to be a little quick. And then we're going to settle down on these three truths. So let's buckle our seatbelts. But before we do that, let me pray. And Father, as we, as we come to you, we, we do thank you for your word. And I join with Springer's prayers for the people of Nepal. God, be merciful there, we pray. We pray also as we're in comfort here this morning for our brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are being persecuted by wicked and evil and satanic people like ISIS. We pray that you, as Paul prays for the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3, that you would deliver them from evil and wicked men and you would cause the word of God and the gospel to speed rapidly in those places. Now we turn our attention to your holy inspired word and we pray that you would show us more of yourself through this text I pray for unbelievers that are in this room even now may not realize that they're unbelievers that you would in your kindness bring them to a place of repentance so that they can see Jesus and I pray for believers that you would just renew and refresh our affections in Christ and I pray this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the story is, is that Jacob has been, I'm sorry, Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers unjustly. Gets thrown in prison. Uh, he, well, he's sold into slavery. He, is, he resists the sinful advances of his master's wife. And for that, he gets thrown in prison. But God gives him this gift of dream interpretation where he does interpret dreams, but he gets forgotten by the guys whose dreams he interpreted and has to spend another couple years in prison. And then the Pharaoh has a dream, and, and these, one of the guys that got out of prison because of Joseph said he would through his dream remembers Joseph. And now Joseph comes to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, as we read last week. And now, because his dream is right, he has a plan. Joseph then is exalted. So he goes from being a Hebrew slave slash prisoner now to being the governor of Egypt, preparing them for this famine that has hit the land and caused all of the food to dry up. But Joseph had not only this dream, knowing that it would happen, but God gave him the leadership skills to plan for this famine, to save up food for when this famine struck. And now there's this famine and everybody around Egypt is not prepared for the famine, and only Egypt is prepared for the famine because of Joseph and his leadership, and now everybody's coming to Egypt for food, to buy food, because God has blessed Egypt through Joseph. So chapter 42. When Jacob learned, so Jacob, his dad, back in Canaan, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this, why do you look at one another? In other words, what are you doing standing around? Go do something, you know. Verse 2, and he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. 
So 10 of Joseph's brothers. Now remember these brothers are the brothers who sold him into slavery before. And Joseph, through all those events now, is the governor of, of Egypt. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain for Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, he's the youngest one, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel, or Jacob, remember Jacob's name got changed to Israel, so sometimes in this text, Jacob will be referred to as Jacob or Israel, same person. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground, just like Joseph dreamed 20 years before. It's, it's happening. It's coming to pass. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. See, they didn't recognize him. He had been in this Egyptian culture. He was not just this little teenage Hebrew boy anymore. He's this regal Egyptian ruler. Joseph spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Can you imagine Joseph boiling it? You're honest men, yeah. Uh, We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons. And that probably made, we'll see, that makes Joseph's heart beat a little fast. 12 brothers, huh? The sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with, your, with our father, and one is no more. Speaking of Joseph, they had assumed that he had been killed, probably, uh, or just, you know, is now just lost and working as a slave. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. So Joseph now, in this position of authority, is going to test his brothers. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three Days. Okay, so they're in confinement for three days, and in between that time, Joseph's going to think about it a little bit and change the plan, plan just a little bit. Instead of, sending, instead of uh, just holding uh, one, he's going to hold just one of them and send them all back. So verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, Benjamin. And Benjamin is actually Joseph's only full brother. So remember a couple chapters ago, Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife, well, he only had two children by Rachel, and it was Joseph and Benjamin. So of all of his brothers, the rest of them are half-brothers, this youngest brother, Benjamin, is Joseph's only full brother. And he says, bring him, bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They're talking about 
Joseph years before when they sold him into slavery. And they're thinking that Joseph can't understand them because he, they're thinking he's Egyptian. And they're just talking amongst themselves. Their guilty conscience is bubbling over right now and they're talking. That is why this distress is coming upon us. God's punishing us is what they're saying. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. So can you imagine that scene, right? They're like, oh, God is, like, finally the chickens are coming home to roost. Like, we're getting punished for what we did to Joseph 20 years before. They're saying this out loud, not knowing that Joseph could understand their language. And he breaks down in tears because it's so emotional because they're talking about him. Their guilty conscience is coming out. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? They realize, oh, we're getting set up by God. Now the guy's going to think we're thieves. And oh, they're just, there's just despair for their guilt is just coming out. And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of this land, speaking of Joseph, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our fathers. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with a father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine in your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when, they had, when their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid because they knew that they would be accused of being thieves. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back. But he said, No, no, Jacob's not about to let that plan go. He says, My son, meaning Benjamin, shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he's the only one left. If harm should happen to you on the journey that you were, or if you were to make, you would bring down, my, bring down gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So here's this incredible scene. They have this confrontation with Joseph. They don't know it's their brother. And their brother sends them back to go get the youngest brother and to bring him back to him. Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they will treat Benjamin like they treated him. Okay, just a few verses in 43. Chapter 43, Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy a little food. But Judah, now this is significant, Judah's going to come up with a plan, because as it stands now, Jacob is not going to let Benjamin, the youngest son, go with the brothers back to Egypt, as Joseph has requested. But Reuben, I mean, but Judah, this wicked brother, Judah, the one who participated in the slaughtering of that city, when that city, remember those two guys raped their sister Dinah? He was one of the ones that 
participated in that slaughter. And then Judah, a couple chapters ago, is the guy who had these, you know, we've got kids in here now, so earmuffs. He had these bad relationships with his daughter-in-law who was dressing up as a disreputable woman. This is that guy, right? This is that guy, that wicked, jacked up train wreck of a brother is actually going to be selfless here. He's changing. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, said to us you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And let me skip down to verse 8. So Judah is saying, look, I'm going to substitute myself here. He says, he's about to say to his dad, let Benjamin go. And if anything happens to Benjamin, let it be on me, on my head. So the wicked brother, apparently God has been working on his heart. The least likely brother to do anything righteous or good is now becoming like his heart is changing. And he's standing up realizing that they've got to do something. And he's saying, you know what, Dad? I know you won't want to let Benjamin go with us. But we've got to do this in order to, sur- to survive. And let, me, let us take Benjamin. And if anything happens to our younger brother, let, it, let the punishment fall on my head. Don't miss this. Wicked, jerk, older brother Judah is now the selfless one who says, let it, be, let it happen to me if anything bad happens to our brothers, we take him. And Joseph, uh, Jacob, Jacob the father relents. And so they take Benjamin back to Egypt. And the funny, we won't read it, but they get, they get called in. So they, they, they come with their brother Benjamin back. And Joseph sees them and he, he tells his servant as he sees them coming from afar, oh, go prepare a meal. And bring them into my palace, you know, and let's have a meal. And, and the brothers are met by the servant, and they said, you're going to go eat in Joseph's house. And they're scared. And they think, and this is the mentality. It's like country has come to the city a little bit. They think, you know, they're this rich Egypt, and they say, oh, what's going to happen to us? They're going to steal our donkeys. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, they're not going to steal your donkeys. I mean, they're just ignorant, just scared. They just don't know what to do. And so at the end of uh, chapter 43, verse 26, it says, when Joseph came home, they brought, into, they brought into the house to him the present they had with him. So they, they brought a present to their brother. They still don't know it's their brother and bowed down to him on the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin. So this is Joseph beholding his younger brother Benjamin his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. Can you imagine the emotion, right? So they still don't know who Joseph is. They still think he's just this governor of Egypt. 
and he's weeping at the sight of his younger brother. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They They served him by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Oh, friends, the sin of racism has been around with us forever and ever, has it not? not going to get down on that rabbit trail, but one of the implications of the gospel is that it breaks down the middle wall of separation between people of different ethnicities. Amen? And by the way, the only reason we have different color skin is because long before some of our ancestors just happened to live closer to the equator where the angle of the sun was different and God in his kindness just caused our skin to adapt to more sun. Thank you very much. All right. But we all come from one Man, can I get an amen on that? Amen. All right. Yeah, all right. don't get me started on that. I don't have time. We've got a lot to read here. You guys are getting me sidetracked. All right. And they sat before him, verse 33, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Oh, my gosh, our heads are not getting chopped off. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry. What is Joseph doing? He's showing favoritism to Benjamin, just like his father Jacob had showed to him when he got that coat of many colors. It's like he's trying to provoke the jealousy of his brothers to see if they will be jealous of Benjamin and do the same thing to Benjamin that they did to him 20 years before. Joseph is testing his brothers. He's trying to provoke them to do the same thing that they did to him. First couple verses of chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of the house. Now he's really going to get sort of sneaky here. Then he commanded the steward of the house. Fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of a sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Because what's happening, and we'll skip ahead here, is he's going he's gonna to then tell his servant to chase them down after they leave and accuse them of stealing this cup and they're going to say, okay, we're going to do a little search party. You know, if you've ever been a private in the army, you know you've done a search party, right? And you got some, you know, something that smells, and the drill sergeant's out there, and he can smell peanut butter, and he says, everybody, you know, rucksack, just empty your rucksacks, right? I get a couple guys, yeah, I know, you know what I'm talking about. And so the servant's just, it's just a plan to set up to see if these brothers will offer up Benjamin like they offered up like they offered up Joseph so many years before. So let's skip down to verse 14 of chapter 44. When Judah and his brothers, so the servant has come, and he said, hey, my master's missing a cup. Who's got the cup? And they're like, we, 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 we didn't take a cup. And he says, okay, we're going back. We're going to drop our rucksacks. We're going to find out what's in there. And whoever has this cup is going to be a slave forever. He's going to stay as a slave. That's the deal. So when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And by the way, they found, hey, it's Benjamin has it. So now the brothers are back, guilty. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? This is really important right here. This is the moment that Joseph has been trying to bring about to see if Judah will say, This little brother that we brought that you told us to bring, he, he must have done it. 
But Judah doesn't do that. Judah, who could have thrown Benjamin under the bus, doesn't do this. Wicked Judah. Wicked Judah, who was the ringleader of selling Joseph, who was this wicked brother who did these horrible things with his daughter-in-law. Wicked Judah steps up and is changed. And he says, he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He's not just talking about the cup, is he? He's realizing that God is exposing their sin of what they did to Joseph years before. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also, and he also in his hand, whom the cup has been found. And then he goes on to say, Lord, to his brother Joseph, who he still doesn't know is Joseph, he says, don't let the punishment be upon my brother. Let it be upon me. Judah is saying, I will take the punishment. I want to substitute myself for my brother. The exact opposite of the way they treated Joseph 20 years before. Sell this little little daddy's favorite. Sell him into slavery. Can't stand him. And now, Judah is saying, I will take the punishment of my younger brother. And then to chapter 45. Joseph provides for his family. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried. He said, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Can you imagine? I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine like, Oh man, we thought we had to deal with just this foreign pharaoh's governor. Now we have to deal with our vengeful little brother who we wronged 20 years before. But verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. Instead of taking their lives, he gives them grace. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me there. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Friends, he's attributing everything that happened to him not to the hand of his brothers but to God. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then the rest of the chapter goes on, and we won't take time to read. But then he says, now go to your father, go to our father, and tell him to come and bring the family to Egypt, and I will provide for you here. And they go, and at the end of chapter 45, they tell their father. And Jacob is so, he's just numb to the news. And eventually, after it sinks in, he prays God, and the family, as we'll see in the coming chapters, goes to Egypt and is saved by Joseph. So very quickly, as we end, three quick lessons that I think we learned from this incredible scene. One is that God will do what it takes to bring his people to repentance. God will do whatever it takes to bring his people to repentance. 
God promised Abraham that he would give Abraham a family and that this family would be the people that through whom he would bless all the families of the earth. God, in seed form in the Old Testament with Abraham that became the nation of Israel, and in the same way, the church in the New Testament has a people. He says that he will make his glory known through his people in the Old Testament, Israel, and the New Testament, all peoples that are trusting in Christ, the church. And God will do whatever it takes. He will intentionally order events to bring about right relationship with his people. He will soften their hearts. Despite how rebellious they are, God will bring them into right relationship with himself and bring about repentance in their lives. He guarantees it. He's not going to just work with people who are rebelling against him. He's going to soften their hearts no matter how rebellious they are and he's going to arrange events in their life even if it requires affliction and famine and trial and distress. He's going to break their rebellious will and bend it to obey him. That's how committed God is to being in right relationship with the people that he will use. God will do that. And in fact, he may be doing that with some of us. Certainly, if you're a Christian, he has done it with you. He has somehow, he has broken into your rebellion and he has caused your heart to be soft so that you can obey him. And that's what God does with his people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German uh, pastor and martyr, I think kind of touched on this when he talked about how God is not about just kind of cheap grace. In other words, just letting people sort of be kind of, um, you know, confessors of, of like, yeah, we're God's people, but we can just kind of do whatever we want and God will use us anyway. That God, God's not into cheap grace. He won't, he won't abide with that. He's going he's gonna to break our hearts. He's going to cause hardship so that we will be humbled, so that we will realize the, the great lengths that God has gone in to go, get into relationship with us, so that we will finally turn away from rebellion and turn in faith to him. And Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, contrasts cheap grace Verse costly grace. Let me read what he says about cheap grace. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And that's what God is doing to, to, to the nation of Israel and what he does to Christians today. He's not going to let them just think that they're God's people just because they descended from Abraham or they grew up in the church. He's going to bring about not just external confirmation, circumcision in the case of the Jews. He's going to bring about internal transformation, even if it means hardship and trial. And so just like Maybe Judah and his brothers were sort of caught up in thinking that they were just kind of okay because they're descended from Abraham. How many people in America are just kind of caught up thinking that they're okay with God just because, oh, we live in the South, or, you know, my dad used to be a deacon here or whatever, or my mom used to, you know, whatever. I got a bulletin from somewhere, and so I'm kind of right with God. And God will have none of that. He will go to great lengths to bring about heart change in his people. This is what Bonhoeffer says about costly grace as contrasted with cheap grace. He says that this costly grace, which God is committed to, 
Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of of it a man will gladly sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy with which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. And that's what God is doing in Israel. And that's what he's doing in us. He's saying, I will not put up with just an exterior form. I'm going to bring about repentance in you so that we're in right relationship so that I can really use you in this world for my glory and your joy. God is committed deeply to the repentance of his people. Secondly, and we're going to cruise through these quickly, two, this just teaches us that no man is beyond the reach of God's grace. I mean, come on, Judah. 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 The mass murderer slash incestuous father-in-law who after he found out what he did with this young lady who was his widowed daughter-in-law not knowing that it was her said burn her at the stake Judah God through the years is working on Judah's heart and Judah the unlikeliest of candidates becomes the one whose heart is changed and at the moment of truth stands before his brother and says take me instead of Benjamin punish me Judah is an example that no one is beyond God's grace no one no one I had a conversation with a guy that used to come to church here about four or five years ago I moved on. He's not here anymore. But I had a conversation with him where he was wrestling with this idea that he had done so many wicked things in his past that there's no way that God could forgive him because he was too wicked. And I said, brother, and that may be some of you in this room right now. You may be, you're kind of here because your girlfriend drag, drag, dragged you or your, your, your husband's here and you're, or whatever. Just your, an army buddy invited you, but you just can't wait for me to shut up so you can get out of here. I know what you're feeling. I've been there. Just a couple more minutes, by the way, brother or sister. But you're feeling like there's, there's no way that God could forgive me because of what I did. Think about the value judgment that you're making. You're saying, okay, the God that created all the universe, that caused Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on the cross, to rise again from the grave, that can forgive all manner of sin. No, no, that may be powerful, but my little thing that I've got going on over here, my adultery, or my this or that, or my whatever, or my sin, or the, the, no, you know, this is so much more powerful than what God can handle that I'm just going to hold on to this little, this little ring, like that little creepy little thing on Lord of the Rings, like Gotham. It's like my little precious, right? And you're just so skinny and malnourished because you are making an idol out of your unworthiness and you're saying, you know what? God can handle a lot of stuff, but he can't handle mine. So I'm going to walk around in guilt and hang my head in despair to soothe my guilty soul. Friends, that is a lie. Judah, the worst of the worst, 
God reached down and changed his heart. His arm is not too short. His ear is not dull. He is mighty to save, friend. And that may be you. That may be you right now. Look away from your sin. I don't care how wicked you think it is. Look away from your sin and look to the God who delights, as Romans 4, 5 says, in saving the unrighteous. In fact, he doesn't save the righteous because there are no righteous. He saves only the unrighteous. Friends, rest in the... And by the way, here's another application. Oh, dear, parent, dear mom and dad who are, who are praying for your, your, your son or daughter that is away from God. Oh, friends, friends, I, I, I just I want to come alongside you. I want to say have hope in God because God can and does save. Oh, put your hope in a God who can save, who can save, and who does save, and can save people in the worst and most wicked of situations. Judah! God changed Judah's heart. He can change yours, and he can change your rebellious sons too. Praise God. Praise God. And then thirdly, and I end with this, God will fulfill his purpose in his people. I think this kind of wraps it up and all kind of goes together, doesn't it? You see, what God, you see the hidden hand of God, like the hidden hand of providence behind all of this? Like we think, if we were reading this story for the first time and we didn't know the future, we would think, oh my gosh, Joseph's been sold into slavery. Ah, oh, his wicked brothers, how are they going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 12? This family's a train wreck. How's this going to happen? All of this, the hidden hand of God is arranging all these things. And Joseph, I think, understands it all because remember his speech to his brothers at the end there in Genesis 45, he says, no, no, you didn't send me here. That might have been the means that God used to bring about his end. But behind it all was a sovereign God who orders the steps of his people who's arranged everything that happens in the history of the universe to bring about his plan, right? So we may feel like that thing that happened to us 10 years ago has wrecked what we thought was God's will for our life. Oh, but dear friends, no, 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 no. That trial or that hardship, whatever it was, it's just like what happened to Joseph. It's a mere nail in God's pouch of nails that he uses to put the hammer of his providence and nail you and fasten you more deeply to himself. Do you see that? In the moment, we think, oh, it's an interruption of what I hoped for. But it's a nail in the master carpenter's hands where he is fastening us to himself. God will fulfill his purpose in his people no matter what happens. And he will use tragedy and triumph to bring it about. My favorite quote from Spurgeon, that's not true. I don't think I have a favorite quote from Spurgeon. There are so many. But he said in one sermon, don't have it on the screen. I just love it. It's on the forefront of my mind. He says that, that, that Jesus often rides on the black horse of affliction. He rides on the black horse of affliction to the doorsteps of our hearts to wean us from this world and woo us to heaven. But let's not believe it because my man Charles Haddon Spurgeon sharing a middle name with Austin Haddon Orlich, and I love that. Don't think I missed that. (laughs) Let's not believe it because Spurgeon said it. Let's believe it because God's word says it. Psalm 138, verse 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord, listen to this. Listen to this, dear friend, in despair. 
whether it's sin that you have committed or sin that has been committed against you that has left your life in shambles. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Friends, when I read that text and when I see this truth in Genesis 45, it tells me two things. It tells me that I can rest in the good and gracious providential arms of my loving Father. I know whom I have believed, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.12. And he says, I know whom I believe, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And it not only causes me to rest, it makes me reckless in my life towards him. In a good way, I mean that, a reckless abandon. Christ is better. He is good. He's gracious. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's working all things together for my good and his glory. He's like a treasure hidden in the field. And when I find it, I should be glad to give up all that I have to follow him. Maybe, maybe God is calling a person in this room to give up a life of comfort, to go to the other side of the world and to be a missionary. Maybe he's calling you to get outside of some comfort and you realize that God is doing all things, arranging everything in your life to bring about a restful, reckless abandon in your life because you are so confident in a God who superintends your life for his glory and your good that you're willing to give, you're willing to let go of these 80 years so that God can bring about his purpose in you as he intends to do. Oh God, make me that type of person. Make this room full of people like that that see what Joseph saw for your glory and our joy. Let me pray. Father, as we come now to respond to this word and to these, uh, this scene and this truth, I pray two things. First, for anybody in this room who is not yet trusting in Christ, Would you make Jesus so beautiful and so powerful and so gracious and so lovely and so satisfying and so irresistible that they cannot help but to see him? You did that for Judah. Something happened where he was a godless rebel doing wicked things and you brought him to a place where he was at the end of himself and then he he looked up and he saw how, how beautiful and how worth obeying you was that it caused him to just give his life away. And when he gave his life away, that's when he truly found life. God, would you do that for somebody in this room who, who, who came and were just wanting tips on how to live a better life or moral lessons or principles to navigate through the week? Lord, Lord would you do something far greater than that? Would you make Jesus so beautiful, so worth giving up your life for? Because he gave up his life for us. Why would you do that? And then to my friends, my brothers and sisters that are already trusting in Jesus, would you, would you entrench in us a confidence and the power of your sovereign grace that nobody, nobody is beyond your reach. And that you are mighty to save. And it would make us love you more and worship you more for our salvation. Do it, I pray. I pray, I humbly pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.